Uh, hi, Roni. Uh, welcome to the Happy Hour. This is a very special episode. Uh, we're actually today uh, at your parents' place, Masbot. That's right. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for uh, being on, on the show. Um, if, if I may start by saying that you've, um, you've studied Middle Eastern uh, uh, studies and uh, you've ended up being a podcaster, a writer and an advocate for, for uh, Lebanese sovereignty. However, you're not a journalist, but you are present everywhere in the media. Um, and um, I know that I've heard you say you believe uh, your contribution is through narratives, is through telling stories. So my first question is, do you think that you're someone who wishes to reflect pu- public's opinion or are you someone who wishes to influence or shape public's opinion? Well, I'll start by saying thanks to you for letting me join your show. I like that our roles are reversed. It was an honor for me to have you on the podcast a few months ago, if not almost a year ago, maybe. So time's going by very fast. So it's, it's an honor for me to now be under your, uh, whatever this is, telescope and horoscope and, and the like. Um, I appreciate this question. I think it's a great question to start this conversation. Um, perhaps it's a bit of both. I do think that storytelling lends a very special way at explaining a lot of the difficult terrain we're going through. Um, I think I'm best at doing that. I gave a walking tour for 15 years called Walk Beirut. And this was a four-hour storytelling adventure into Beirut's history, which of course reflected on politics, but it also reflected on everything that went wrong in Lebanon and the good stuff that we don't really remember that much today. So I like storytelling. And within that, I think there is an element of persuasion. And uh, you're right, I, don't, I, I cannot consider myself a journalist. I'm not a reporter. Um, I, if anything, I write an opinion column, uh, mostly at Now Lebanon. But uh, I do think that it is the role of anyone who cares about what happened to this country and maybe sees things a certain way that many people today are not maybe comfortable addressing. This could be through a climate of fear. Uh, This could be through maybe looking at a narrow slice of the story. I think it's okay to offer some reflection and, if it's okay, to persuade, but not to put off. So in other words, not to fight, not to argue for the sake of arguing. I think healthy debate, uh, when it's appropriate, I think it, it does wonders. And I've been on other podcasts, and I've had that privilege, I guess, in, in doing that. But just, just so that no one gets, um, yeah, gets what you said in the wrong way, when, when you say persuasion, um, you do mean like uh, uh, more of an open dialogue, more of speaking things up, more of sharing different perspectives? Uh, or no, do you mean... Maybe that, and also, if necessary, correcting what could be falsehoods, or perhaps looking at the bigger picture when the bigger picture is more important. So it could be both. It could be shaping or reframing what could often be lost in the conversation. That could touch on issues like sovereignty, which you mentioned a bit earlier. But I think there's a lot to talk about. And that, that's one of those key components yeah, yeah, where I'm, some I'm reflection sure, yeah, needs. I'm, I'm, I'm sure we will touch on uh, these different uh, topics today. Um, your late father, Mohammed Chatah, was assassinated um, in 2013. That's um, nine years ago. Um, I know you've described your experience on the day and the things that you've did. 
um, at least I know you, you, you explained that with, uh, with Jad. Um, my, my question, however, is after everything uh, you've been through during that period, after things settled down, uh, after all the phone calls, all the uh, conversations you've had, when you've had that first moment to catch your breath, um, to sit with yourself, to be by, by, your, by yourself on your own, um, what were the thoughts that came to mind? What were the emotions you've had on that first, very first time you've had the opportunity to be with yourself, by yourself after that um, very terrible incident? You know, I appreciate your questions. I think this is the first time I've been asked this question this way, which is almost honing in on the subject most people don't discuss, which is the emotional, the, the reaction, the personal reaction. Um, I can best describe it as a permanent scar. And there's something about realizing the moment that I knew it was my father. Um, there's that, that millisecond, I think, is it's with me today. Even though the assassination happened just over eight years ago, so that's some time. But within that, I think about it every day. Uh, sometimes I think about it more than once. Sometimes I think about it every hour or even more. So there's a, there's a permanence there. When it comes to the, uh, the toll it takes on your, on your health, I don't think I realized how damaged I was until later. And when I say damaged, I don't want to sound like I am more of a victim than anyone else. I mean damaged in terms of personal pain. Um, I think it took me maybe years to understand what happened. I was silent for about four years. I actually went to the UK. I, uh, I spent four years in Scotland. I thought that I would be able to reflect better detached from this country altogether. And it took four years for me to realize that I simply cannot let go of this country. So maybe it took that much time to wake up a bit and address the wounds. Um, but in, in terms of emotional toll, I don't know how to quantify this. Um, there's a great, somebody who left me his, his own parting words before he passed away. He told me something which I think is true. He said, death has majesty. And the idea that it heals with time strikes me as unpersuasive. And I think he's right. I don't think this stuff heals. You live with it. And uh, for better or worse today, when I see my little kiddish growing, and when I hear my voice aging, and at times when I catch myself doing things my father did, I realize that a bit of him is inside me. So that's some comfort, I think, and that he's not gone. He just lives on in a different way. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this very personal experience. Um, Ronnie, are you still angry? Is there anger inside of you? Um, I mean, you did experience injustice, which is still ongoing. It's an ongoing injustice. Today, in 2022, are you angry? Anger is not the right word. Um, there's a bit of clarity in that I think this is the paramount issue that doesn't just impact me, it impacts all of us in different ways, perhaps at different degrees, but I think there's a permanence here, and it is essential for it to be addressed. Anger, 
I don't think is what I feel. What I feel more is that I don't hate this city. I don't hate this country. I don't hate Lebanese for being Lebanese. And I don't think it's our fault. And that's something that's maybe not a very popular opinion. And I think sometimes this could be seen as a cop-out almost, looking away for answers. And I see you're doing this, so it's my time to do that as well. Cheers, Ramsey. <laughs> Happy hour. Um, I do think that there's a big problem that Lebanese cannot solve on their own. And I think the, the emotions are there in terms of we didn't get what we deserve, which is an end to the civil war. We live on in a war zone. And, the, and I, don't, I know it's not answering the question directly. We, 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 will, touch, we will touch on the, on the, on the war. Uh, so I'm just curious now, I'm, I'm still curious about your emotional state. Uh, uh, because I, uh, well, I would like to think that um, knowing how, 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 how um, things develop, that partly you are driven, you're motivated by what you feel. You're, you're motivated by the grievance you have inside. So I'm just trying to um, put a tag on these emotions you still have before moving into um, addressing um, the, more, the, more of the political and sociopolitical scene. That's, you're right. I'm not being entirely accurate with my description. I'm healing my wounds. And I'm doing it on my terms through what I think is what I do best, which is storytelling. And I offer a form of poetic justice, maybe, that makes me feel better it allows me to sleep better at night. So it's not anger, it's more pain relief. And it's not an easy thing to do. Is it related in any way to the injustice? My, my, I'm, just, I'm just curious about the injustice side. Uh, do you think um, justice would have changed things? Do you think justice would change things today? If the word is applied the way that I understand it and the way I see it in that Lebanese get their fair chance at reforming the state and Lebanese have the tools necessary to do so over time, then yes, I think so. If justice is partial, if justice is fleeting, and if it's on one group's terms, then no, I don't think so. I take the word in its broadest definition. So what's, what's justice to you today? You know, that's a, that's a very good question. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fair question, but it's also a huge question. So, um, we can, if you want, we can narrow it down to, to, your, to your father's assassination. What's justice in terms of your father's assassination? Sure, you know what? I'll try, I'll try to hone in and then sort of take it away from there. Uh, today is the 14 year anniversary of Wissam Aid's assassination. Next week, next Thursday, I believe, Next Thursday evening is the one-year anniversary of Lukman Slim's assassination. Under a month ago, my father's assassination. If you go back a bit, two months ago, or less than that, Gibran Twaini. And there's many others. And the list is long. So, if you are willing to go down the road of ammonium nitrate being parked in Beirut, killing hundreds of Lebanese, and destroying thousands of homes, they're also part of this story. So I think political violence, and the way I understand this term, I think that is the issue at hand. And political violence has not been addressed. Justice, I think, sorry, injustice, uh, 
And a word that I'll borrow from Monica Burgman, Lukman Slim's uh, wife, his widow, uh, impunity, which she, I think, brought to the stage eloquently, um, I think that is the issue. I live in this world. Uh, many Lebanese do. I've gotten to know many victims over the years, and this is how Lebanon works. You, you relate your pain to others. I've met many victims of the port blast. We're all going through the same thing. So there's that story, and how do you end political violence? The other levels of justice, which are important, whether it's economic fairness, or whether it's reform in terms of the social pact, or whether it's uh, corruption, or all the other issues that plague us, environmental decay. I mean, the list is so long in this country. There is a lack of fairness and there is injustice there too, but I believe you can't get there until you address political violence. I, I know you know that I study political violence, so it's, it's part of what I, <laughs> what I do. And this I, is my I, way of offering you a segue. segue. <laughs> And I understand the impact of violence uh, on societies, and I can certainly understand the depth of, of um, um, the wound it can cause. Um, but I'm sure we, I, I think we'll be talking about that in some other occasions, so I'll leave that till then. Um, I, I want to an, end this, this, uh, this segment or this section in, in this one final question, which I think I know, I know your answer to, but I still want to ask. For the sake of this re being re a reoccurring question in the minds of, 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 of at least some of the Lebanese I've spoken to, something that um, fulfilling justice in a country like Lebanon might take the country into another civil war, and I think you might understand what that you know what, what that might implicate in terms of applying justice, uh, because. Political justice in Lebanon is related to groups, uh, uh, specifically to groups, group identities, to how groups identify with their leaders. So applying justice in many different cases in Lebanon might mean different groups feeling um, another sort of grievance, another sort of pain, which might lead to a civil war. Um, I want to know what you think about this dynamic. I will echo what Saad Hariri said yesterday in his resignation speech. He took credit, or he took, he took the conversation to two places. He said his role was to not let another civil war happen. And the second statement was to improve the condition of Lebanese. And he said he failed at the second, and he succeeded in the first. I would, with all respect, disagree with his understanding of what's going on. I do not think the threat of civil war is anyone's threat but one militia. And I think they cannot survive a civil war, and I think they'd be under the radar, and they may even have to uh, change the way they understand themselves and the way we understand them, should that emerge. So I do not think a civil war is uh, going to happen as long as this group has dominated the sphere of security and, and the like. But we can leave that a bit till later. The, the reason I'm starting here is because I don't think civil war is going to happen. I don't think Lebanon's communities are out to kill each other. And I don't think our local problems are going to lead to a bloodbath if we address the wounds. I don't think that's true. Maybe I'm wrong, but I still have hope in that, that Lebanon's problems are real and they are local, but rarely do they emerge 
and outright violence. And when they do, Lebanese can contain them. What we have now is a story that's not ours. And this justice, the way I'm describing it, it is something that, it is a system error that emerges under Syria's rule of this country, and it's preserved today by one group only. So that is where I take the conversation, because that is the one thing Lebanese cannot address. Everything else, I think we have, it's within our means. We're robbed of those chances. But the level of justice we deserve, I think, unfortunately, cannot happen in Lebanon. These are issues with Iran that Lebanese cannot communicate. We don't have a diplomatic uh, channel with Iran. We don't have a state that does our bidding with Iran. Uh, and I think that's, that's the unfairness here, is that we are depending on countries with leverage to deliver the end to injustice notwithstanding communal differences, those are real. And Lebanese sectarianism can turn violent. And it has turned violent before. I don't think that's on the horizon. Yeah, I'm, let's, let's, let me then re, um, uh, readdress the question in a different way. When we talk about political violence today in Lebanon, I think we agree that while sectarianism like you ended when uh, your first answer might turn violent, um, there are no indications of them turning violent uh, uh, today. Probably because the same sectarian leaders who went to war still stand or sit on, this, on the sects uh, as leaders of these sects and uh, they kind of had enough. So uh, there's really no motivation. Plus there's no uh, economic support for, 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 for them wanting, wanting violence. But I'm addressing a very specific case where when we talk about political violence today, when we, when we think about political violence over the past 20 years, uh, we seem to be a, like a pointing at a specific uh, a group that we think is responsible for all the political violence we've seen. My point is this group, whether we like it or not, has the support of not less than half a million Lebanese. Now, yes, um, Many of those people follow uh, uh, this group because um, they need this, this uh, 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 sort of uh, symbolic safety that this group provides and so on. But my question is, in terms of political justice, when it comes to what this group has committed, or we think has committed, um, would justice against this specific group lead into any sort of conflict, considering what's at stake today for this group and Iran? The Kata'ib in 1976 turned into a militia. In the mid-1980s, you had a bigger militia, the Lebanese forces. And by the early 1990s, the Kata'ib party and the Lebanese forces became political parties. And they resorted to politics, as rotten and corrupt and unimpressive as it is in this country, they're political parties today. Whether their numbers were in the hundreds of thousands or not, whether or not they have Lebanese today that would be able to rearm, the fact is they're political parties even until 2022, when things are very dire. Hezbollah, unlike those groups, has leverage that no other Lebanese party has, and has a situation that no other Lebanese militia had during the civil war. There's an external component that has turned a Lebanese group into a regional problem. So that's why I think 
if Lebanese were to handle it on their own, and they've tried. They have tried. And I would disagree with your, uh, with your lexicon slightly. It's that we know that this group is responsible. Uh, just, uh, what is it, December of 2020, there's a thousand-page report that explains why they were responsible for all the attempted and successful assassinations from 2004 to 2005. The political problem I was trying remained. to be legally correct. I was trying to be legally correct, considering that there, there has been no, 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 yeah. no, yeah. That group has the capability not just to kill its opponents, and those are the opponents that tried within the country, has the capability to kill reform, has the capability to kill protest movements that impress the world. When a quarter of the population goes to one place in Lebanon on March 14, 2005, it's important. Yet all of those aspirations are decimated. When two million people, or almost half the population of this country, goes on the streets on October 17 and the weekend thereafter, even that can be killed. So I think that it's not a, it's not a situation Lebanon can handle. The Lebanese that tried doing this diplomatically, or whether it's through the written word, or through politics, or through persuasion, whatever, they were killed. They were all killed. The Lebanese killing each other story, which happened in this country's recent history, from 1975 to 1976, you had an all-out sectarian nightmare in this country that turned violent. By 1976, it turned into a Syrian occupation. It wasn't officiated until 1990. It didn't cement itself. But Lebanon's problems, the way they persist, I do not think has to do with our local problems. I think it has to do with regional problems. Let, let me cut you there and um, shift um, the, the conversation somewhere else based on, on what, what, what you were saying. So, yes, you, you keep saying that the problem is with, with uh, our lost sovereignty, that we lost the sovereignty in the country and this is partly uh, uh, the biggest issue. Could, could I add one thing, just one thing, I, I wanted to just hone in because I didn't, I didn't properly answer one point of your question, which is the type of justice I'm describing is not uh, chasing down Hezbollah uh, assassins in Beirut. It's not that. It's giving Lebanon a chance. This could be a, all, all, the, the international intervention that we haven't had, which partially ended our civil war in 1990. This requires a readdressing of Lebanon's role in the region. This also requires looking at Lebanon as not a base for anyone else's wars. So that, that for me, when I, when I use the word justice, I go all the way there. It's not just about names and individuals in this country, even though that's very important for victims. And that's a, that's a critical step for victims, but in terms of Lebanon's well-being, I think it's much bigger than that. So sorry, I interrupted you. Um, so you, you say that our problem um, is the fact that we lost our sovereignty, and I certainly agree. The question remains, when? When did we actually lose our sovereignty? Because I, I would like to go there and then start, you know, addressing the issues and, yeah. So that's a, you know, you're asking the best questions I've had so far in this world of back and forth uh, conversations. I'm glad you're asking these in a way that's direct and also very critical. Um, I would never argue that Lebanon shined. And I don't think independent Lebanon, whether it's the 40s, 50s, or 60s, was really that great. I think it was okay. I think it could get better. And I think it was on its way to getting better. So my understanding of lost sovereignty is on Lebanon's terms, what sovereignty meant to this country. And that's the 1960s. Lebanon did not take part in a major war. 
1967 war that tore apart the Middle East, Lebanon, not one bullet fired across the border in either direction. Uh, 1960s, you have an odd situation, a very passionate and persuasive Arab nationalist in Egypt who was so popular in this country and in the region, but not popular the way um, we think of popularity today on Lebanese terms, almost prophet-like popularity. Gamal Abdel Nasser was a hero to so many Lebanese, he could not enter Lebanon. We had a president who thought this character is going to be a problem for half the population. He stayed at the border. Fouad Sheb wanders over to the United Arab Republic and meets Gamal Abdel Nasser on the Syrian side of the border. That's important. So you have a combination of things. You have an unusual character in Ba'abda who looks at sovereignty as something that's very important, if not the most important factor. You also have Lebanon being neutral, not in the way that some people would argue here, which is shying away from just causes. No, it's that Lebanon does not engage itself in external wars, and we did not take part. For me, those years, up until 1969, I think that's the best we got and if anything, we have to pick up from there. That wasn't the goal. It wasn't shining. And it did lead to something terrible, in my opinion, which is the Palestinian-Israeli war becomes a Lebanese story. In 1970, Lebanon's sovereignty is over. And groups like Kate'ib become cursed forever because they take part in a civil war. It's not a Lebanese sectarian civil war only of a Palestinian-Israeli conflict being fought in Lebanon. So militia brings militia. That's my, that, for me, is the end of Lebanon sovereignty, 1970. Do you think this, this implicit lack of homogeneity in, in between different groups in Lebanon, which we did not see until, until the Palestinians walked into the country? So, see, see my, my, I have a problem, and I'm, this is why I'm asking you the question is with, with uh, um, we, have, we have some sort of positive toxicity when we think about the past. We think that Lebanon was doing very good, you know? We were the, we were the best country in the region, yes, but we had, an un, we, had an, we had a serious problem that was not very obvious or seen by, by people, which, came, which became very obvious when people had to bear arms. So my question is, do you agree that this lack of homogeneity contributed to everything we've seen in losing our sovereignty? I'll answer this question in different ways. So I'll start by offering a, a perspective. It's, it's, a, it's a very long question, so feel free to, no. so feel free to, to answer it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like these questions. It makes me think, actually, while you're talking, which means they're good questions. I don't have anything prepared in my mind. I, I'll, I'll try, um, I'll look at it in different ways. I'll start by offering what I've seen shared in, in also different ways, which is, whether Lebanon is a battered state or a state born in error. And I personally subscribe to the former, which is that Lebanon is definitely not a modern state, is an inefficient old way of power sharing among communities. It's slow, it's, it's sluggish even in the best of times. Um, it is maybe not best equipped for the 21st century and it delivers things based on consensus 
as opposed to individual aspirations, or for that matter, homogen, homo, what the word is here, a homogeneous narrative. It is something that admires and even, I think, preserves in a sense that power-sharing pluralism. So that is something that's old, and that is obviously uh, a very fragile way of governing. And it clearly could not withstand regional tides and war, and that clearly took place in this country. 1970, you're absolutely right. Many Lebanese welcomed this war in Lebanon. Many Lebanese openly supported the arms that other parties were seeking. And absolutely, Lebanese were ready to kill each other in April 1975. I do not think that is something that's unusual. I think when the state loses its responsibility, when the Lebanese army can no longer do its job, and when the state fractures and tells Lebanese parties and political leaders, you're on your own, then yes, you're going to end up in a nightmare. I don't think that's the de facto situation for Lebanon. And the reason I point to the 1960s in particular is because I think that's, it may be an anomaly, it may be an, an unusual circumstance in independent Lebanon, but I think that's the goal. You need to get from there to a better place. So that's one angle, battered or born in error. I think it's battered more than born in error. I don't think the tendency in this country is to slide to violence. I think when you have a violent situation, you're going to end up with violence, especially when the violent situation is not local. And the reason I'm suggesting Hezbollah in that narrative right now, that includes Fatah before, that includes the Syrians too. And you can take it further. The Israelis were here, the peacekeepers spent years here. They took part in fighting too. But Hezbollah is not a Lebanese militia. It is Iran's army in Lebanon. And I think that's what makes the situation unbearable. And that's why the, the, the ingredients for violence will remain always with something like this in Lebanon. And the fact is, I, I personally believe Hezbollah knows this more than other groups, and for that reason does not tolerate the emergence of competing militia. That is a situation that guarantees the ingredients for civil war, and also guarantees one group's survivability. So we're in this really messy situation where it's a security problem that Lebanese don't confront daily. You don't walk around Beirut and think about Hezbollah. Or for that matter, you don't see it. You can actually spend your whole life in Lebanon and never encounter this. But it's the security predicament we're in. And I think that's what could allow Lebanese to fight each other. Um, it hasn't happened. And I don't think it will happen again. Personally, I don't think it will happen. But uh, that doesn't exclude all the, uh, all the problems that come with it. And I hope that answers the question in a, in a fair way. I don't know if I missed anything there. Before I ask you about the 1965 in specific, um, based on what you said on, on Hezbollah being, being an Iranian militia, you said it's not a Lebanese militia, it's an Iranian militia. Iranian army. Yes. I mean, it's Iran's army outside of Iran. Outside of Iran. But I'm, I'm more interested in the social impact of Hezbollah as, a, as an ideology. Um, many people would argue against what you just said and say that um, the Shia have suffered in south of Lebanon and 
there's an ideological um, belief amongst these people that Hezbollah had actually retained uh, dignity to many of those people, uh, preserved um, uh, things they thought have lo they have lost uh, during the, the, the skirmishes they had with, with the Jews who crossed borders uh, in the 30s and the 40s, and who look today at, at Hezbollah as a, as a um, not only a symbolic um, safety provider, but also a realistic safety provider. So, what would you say to those who would argue against what you said by saying that, well, but go to Dahi, uh, go to Tujnoub, uh, 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 go to Baalbek. There's different, different Lebanese families who believe uh, in the efforts that Hezbollah has put, at least in, in fighting Israel and in preserving what, what they think is, a, is their uh, um, communal existence as, as, a, as a Shia community in Lebanon. How, how do you answer that? I think the word evolves over time. I think when we refer to Hezbollah today, it's not the same Hezbollah that was referred to in 1985 or 86 or even 1992, 93, or for that matter, even 2005. So I think the word offers a lot of definition or differing definitions over time. Um, I think you could make the argument that during a civil war, uh, there is that almost, uh, there's a lot of glory involved and dignity and pride when a group is fighting the noble fight. And I think uh, even though that group was involved in some of the bloodiest battles against fellow Shia or fellow Lebanese period, um, you could make that argument that during the worst years of fighting, every Lebanese militia had a role to play. And there's a, there's a romance there, I think. Um, if, you, if you extend that further, to the years of the Israeli occupation in the south, you could extend that argument, even though it becomes wobbly, that as long as the Israelis are sticking around in Lebanon, it's Lebanon's right to fight. Uh, I don't know if it's Hezbollah's rule, but that's a Lebanese responsibility. And there you have words that became national as opposed to party, which is resistance. The fact is the Israelis left 22 years ago. And I think anything that Hezbollah sells today is more on survivability and more on security and over time more to do with Assad's survivability in Syria and Iran's security interests in the region. I think that has nothing to do with what they sell today. Now if their supporters uh, buy into it, it's because we're in a war zone until today. I don't think Lebanese Shia are any different than Lebanese Sunni or Lebanese Maronites or Lebanese whatever. And the same Lebanese family can throw rice on Israelis that are fighting Fatah. The same as Lebanese family can also throw watermelons across the border in 2000 when the Israelis leave. So that stuff is not important, I think. What is important is that Lebanon is not a post-civil war situation. And a militia that functions the way it does today can get what it wants through violence. It can also persuade, and, and I agree with you, I agree a lot of voices go down this road regularly, that Lebanon, fill, um, Hezbollah fills a vacuum where the state doesn't step in. Reality is in reverse. Lebanon's state is paralyzed and, and plundered because of a group that has hijacked key institutions. 
So I don't know. I don't subscribe to that uh, way of looking at Hezbollah. What I would say, though, and I think this is true, that, yeah, the smaller group that emerged in the 1980s, whether through Iranian support or not, is a very different machine than what we have right now. And I think it's almost impossible to draw the line today. They're different stories. Same word, but entirely different situations. I think we've, uh, we've, we've, we've covered that um, uh, sufficiently. So uh, let me go back to the 1965. Um, you were talking about Abdel Nasir and how the fact that um, many Lebanese liked him, or loved him, <laughs> loved him. Uh, I, can, I can recall my, my, my father speaking about my grandfather and how, you know, being a Nasiri is a, is a, was a big thing you know, for, for, many, for many Lebanese. Um, the question is why? Why were many Lebanese uh, Nasri uh, during that period and why many were not? And is, this a cert is there a certain, like, is it peculiar that most of those who were um, pro-Nasir were actually Muslims? while most of those who were anti-Nasser were something else. I mean, the, the reason somebody like Nasser swept the region, not just Lebanon, I think uh, there's, I mean, there's literature on this subject. I, I, immense stories about one man who captivated a post-colonial era and uh, Lebanon is not so central to that story, but it's there. I mean, he definitely fit the times. Coup d'etat against monarchs installed by the Europeans. Uh, a very modernist, secularist way of looking at things that was new. And it seemed to fit the 20th century well. It also, I think, made more sense during the Cold War. And you had this almost... Uh, like Tito of Yugoslavia, this third way, this third trend. So the fact is you're right. Most Lebanese Muslims, not all, but most Lebanese Muslims and some Lebanese Christians thought that this man fit the narrative here as well. And most Lebanese Christians and some Lebanese Muslims felt otherwise. That he could not turn Arab nationalism, or for that matter, Lebanese isolationism, or whatever you want to call it, Lebanese nationalism, the fact that we did not fight each other in the 1960s says a lot. We fought each other in 1975, not in 1965. Now, 1958, we did briefly kill each other on the streets of the country, not just Beirut. I think the numbers, if I, if I remember it right, it's something like 1,500 Lebanese died that summer, 1958. What's also important is that even though that was a war, if you would, between Arab nationalism and Lebanese nationalism, the fact is it's a three-month war, not a 15-year civil war. Roni, don't you think that is partially related, that's partially due to um, uh, the availability of resources and support and money and weaponry? Um, I mean, we know that, that during, during the, 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 the civil war, different groups were being trained by different countries across the borders in, in Libya and in Iraq, in, in, 
in, in Iraq and in, in different places. So don't you think that if partly we did not go to fight against each other prior to the Palestinian invasion um, due to the fact that there was no international uh, umbrella to cover this civil war? Otherwise, we were ready for a civil war earlier than the 75. What do they say? Hindsight is 2020. Is that the phrase that I mean, yeah, this is there is a lot of hypotheticals, which is real. And you're, you're right in what you're saying. The timing, we could have been we could be lucky in a sense that 1958, the state was able to contain what could have spilled into something bigger. And maybe we're equally lucky, too, that there was an international curiosity in Lebanon's well-being and international intervention. You had Marines landing on the beach of Lebanon. So maybe we're spared a degree of fighting, maybe. We also have Fuad Shheb, who quickly becomes a... Uh, he, he was known as Muhammad Shheb to the Christians, and that was an insult to him. But the guy is a Maronite president, so the man's obviously unpopular from all sides. That could be for the right reasons then. Um, but I think that's the best chance we had at curtailing violence, and we succeeded in 1958. And we also did not kill each other in the 1960s when we could have easily. And this is at a time that the Israelis are bombing Beirut. I mean, Middle East Airlines, something like 13, if I'm not mistaken, where the, most of the fleet was bombed at the airport. We still managed to avoid a slide into civil war. But I go back to political violence only because I think once you allow sub-state groups to become part of the narrative, you're in a free fall. And the free fall doesn't have to be civil war only. It could be where we are right now. And that's why I go back to that phrase, because you're right. I mean, Lebanese problems are old, and Lebanese did kill each other even in the 19th century. I mean, Lebanon's violence is not, uh, we're not angels here, but I don't think we're born to kill each other. So do you think th that Group A in Lebanon, whoever that group is, yesterday or today, wanted or wants to dominate Group B um, by the help of State X because Group A and B feel that they lack commonalities? I, I, I don't think... So, you know, when, when, when Group A, for instance, I'm not naming groups because this is, has reoccurred on different occasions in Lebanon. In the 1840s, yeah. 1860, 1860s, then 1920, then 1943. This has really has, has been reoccurring where one group in Lebanon goes to its ex-state and requests for aid. You know, please help us do this with this group because we want this. So this, this need for different groups in different times, whether it was the Druze and the Maronites in the 1940s, or if it was the Maronites and the Sunnis uh, uh, during the, the Arabism, shall we, shall we call it, or whether it was the Maronites and all the different Muslim groups uh, uh, when, when, when the Palestinians uh, marched into Lebanon. Do you think this need for these different groups to seek international assistance, which we are seeking today, by the way, when we say we want this international intervention, do you think that's partly because when we look at the diff at the other group, we see that there's we, we're lacking some some fundamental commonalities. And when I say commonalities, I don't mean eating kibbeh and drinking ara and listening to Fairuz. I mean 
in how we perceive life and how we perceive our uh, our future and and how we perceive freedom and how we perceive our political system and how we perceive our diversity or pluralism like you said you know there's a famous uh, 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 say which goes where Christians feel like you know they they, they, they feared for themselves from, from from Muslims and where Muslims have accused Christians over and over of being either uh, uh, um, you know amil to 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 uh, to the Zionism uh, on different occasions so do you feel this lack of commonalities has helped in these groups seeking international intervention different times when the state fails all of these things come to the surface and then they express themselves in the worst way possible and the worst way possible and the way you're describing yes these things do happen they happen during the civil war and they happened throughout 15 years of fighting. All groups sought assistance from all places. You mentioned Libya. That's we forget just how far people went for Saddam Hussein and Michel Aoun. I mean, these, it's um, we were shopping everywhere for for assistance. Um, I don't think that equation fits Lebanon always. I think it does apply to war. When there's no war and when the state is fulfilling its role. And it briefly did in independent Lebanese history. I think communities in this country are not prone to seek external assistance. I don't think they're looking to outmaneuver or, for that matter, kill each other. You brought up something earlier. Um, it is true. Impoverished Lebanese in the 1940s and 1950s, and even 1960s, predominantly in the south and the north of the country. So you could say Shia and Sunnis, maybe more Shia than Sunnis back then. Um, I don't think it's the natural inertia for Shia of Lebanon to look to Iran in the 1950s to solve their problems. I don't think it was the natural inertia of anyone in this country to do that until the state stops and it surrenders its responsibilities. Then you have situations that are unthinkable, like Kata'ib and Hafiz al-Assad. Um, Saddam, Qazafi, and the like. Characters that have no role in this country. Musa Sadr is in Libya, he gets kidnapped, he's killed. Everything that could go wrong in those years. So external support. According to Amal, we don't know that for sure. Yeah, I mean... I'm just saying. Yeah. No, you're, you're right, you're right. But I, I... No, I don't think the equation applied always to this country. I do think, I do think, it is impossible to imagine a Lebanon that's any different than 1969. The reason I say that is because we've had now over half a century of geopolitics heavily involved in our local affairs. I think reform is something that we desperately need and we need to reform the state because clearly 1969 is not going to work permanently and it shouldn't. But uh, to go back to 1969 and try to figure out things from there, I don't think is a bad idea. I think that's the, that's the only chance we had. That, that's good. I mean, agreeing to go back in time and reestablish a narrative and then say, let's work things out from there. That's actually a very good thing, which, which I think, I, think we, 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 I mean, you say this, but many people would disagree with you on that too, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and I think, right? I think Ta'if was an attempt at that.
Taif failed. My next question is about Taif. So, so yes. So, but, but before I, I, I ask the question about Taif, because something that came to mind while we were, you were talking about um, uh, the Iranian role in, Le in Lebanon, and for the sake of objectivity, um, when, you, when you were saying that it's not natural for a Shia to, uh, to in Lebanon to seek refuge uh, from Iran in the 1950s, for the sake of, of, of being fair and objective, because Shia say, well, it's not, it's not normal for Sunnis to seek refuge in Saudi Arabia. Because, and for, for them to, um, you know, something that we've been obviously talking about since yesterday, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia needs to approve uh, the Sunni leader in Lebanon. Otherwise, he will not have this, this Arabian cover uh, over, over his role in the country. So, do you, feel, do you feel that that's a fair argument? That yes, Shia have resorted to Iran, but then again, Sunnis resorted to Saudi Arabia? I would look at it in reverse. I think Iran looked to Lebanon in 1980, and Saudi Arabia, in different ways, looked to Lebanon over the last four decades. And I think some of those ways were not helpful. And that includes punitive measures against Lebanese officials. That includes also, in my opinion, anyone's intervention in Lebanon, whether it's Saudi Arabia or Iran or any other country. And when I say intervention, I don't mean it in that you want a country running our affairs. It's more on the Everyone has to agree to leave Lebanon alone. That example, whether it's in Austria in the 1950s or any country like Bosnia today, countries that are deemed too problematic, there's an understanding that they're no longer going to be conflict zones. I think that's the kind of intervention I'm hinting at. That's the kind of neutrality you think we, we should be seeking. It's a neutrality the Lebanese have to re-engage themselves with like they did in the 1960s. And it's a regional responsibility as well. And it's something that clearly includes Iran's security needs, because without that, it's missing, I think, uh, the whole Hezbollah story. I, so I, I don't think it's us looking to external countries necessarily. I think it's external countries that make it easier. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very intrigued to ask you about the, the upcoming deal between the US and Iran, but I'm going to pass on that. Maybe we can talk about this. Uh, 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 some, some other time. Um, so you, you mentioned Taif and you said it, it failed. Do you think um, our problem lies in our inability to apply legislation? Because Taif speaks about uh, 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 um, uh, removing sectarianism, uh, changing the, the, the establishment, uh, introducing some serious uh, uh, changes to, to the, to the uh, to how we perceive politics and, and the system, and, and it failed, like, like you said. So do you think our problem, or one of our problems lie in our inability to apply legislation? Or is it that the legislation is too detached from, from, from reality? Because, uh, just to, to, to expand on the question, um, you know, I, I keep saying that we need to go back to the war if we want to um, really walk into a solution. And people saying the war is behind us. We have the Taif. We just need to apply the Taif. He goes, okay, but we didn't. We didn't apply Taif for a reason. <laughs> There's a reason we couldn't actually enforce uh, the agreement. So I, I really want to hear your views on this. My understanding of Taif is uh, an agreement under Syria's terms that was perverted further to Syria's terms. So it's an agreement with Syria's role embedded in Lebanon for three years, which lasted. 15 to 16 years. Uh, it's, a, it's an agreement that 
calls on all militia to, to disarm. And when the Israelis are gone, there's absolutely no justification for Hezbollah. Also, talks about things like the Senate. It's on, it's, I mean, it's, it's a pillar of Ta'if reform, which is sectarian reform, a chamber that addresses uh, sensitivities, insecurities, never materializes. The fact that the legislation did not take hold and the fact that the Lebanese state did not reform properly when it should have, um, I think it speaks more, in my opinion, to Syria's role in Lebanon than Lebanese. And I'm not excusing anyone for missing opportunities or justifying mistakes made by anyone here. But I think discounting that, I think, would uh, be unfair to what happened. And I'll give you an example. Somebody as, I mean, larger than life character, money and real estate and adventures and all that, somebody like Rafi Hariri. I think it's obvious where his limitations were. And I think it's obvious where those limitations could also turn a blind eye to mistakes. Whether that's recklessness in economics or letting Oslo or believing that Oslo is going to take hold and regional peace is around the corner, debt that we suffer through, or whether it's one man's sincere attempt at ending that nightmare in 2004 and 2005. It's the tail end. So even a Lebanese character, love him or hate him is not even the concern here. Even somebody like that, with, a, with some leverage in Lebanon, gets killed. So I, I, and it's not just him, of course, but I think it cannot be discounted. There's a heavy-handed limitation from Syria. On what you can do. On what you can do, and also, also, what Lebanese politicians need to do to stick around. I mean, they used to go to Damascus for approval. They've had the majority in parliament um, from 2005 onwards, and Syrians left, and yes, I understand that the assassinations carried on, but for, for the, the, the better part of a decade, they've had um, legitimacy in terms of uh, power, um, in terms of asking for intervention, in terms of uh, trying to fix things away from... Um, from the shallow accusations and just you know it's like i mean I, I can i can clearly recall this one very specific conversation of 14 march knocking on on the american administration's door and the americans saying what do you want and, and the Lebanese saying we don't know and this was the, the case with, with 14th of march for 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 quite a time so let's go back to the legislation do you think that too was because of the Syrians' role, even after they left, and even after uh, uh, the opposition had the majority in the parliament? It's what Hezbollah inherited from the Syrian order. And you're absolutely right. 2005 and 2009, you have election victories at uh, majority coalitions, and they're sizable. Um, for the better part of those years, you had MPs hiding in hotels. Um, you had too many assassinations, Ramsey. All of them March 14 figures. And that's why I started off 
by saying Wissam Eid, he's instrumental not just as a Lebanese officer, he's giving data to the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. Now, the Special Tribunal is not a March 14 thing, it's the, Lebanon, it's the Lebanese state under a March 14 vict, uh, majority that enables that kind of uh, trial and investigation and, and verdict. Um, legislation, um, you know, my memory of March 14's defeat is, uh, is really the summer of 2005, where elections that summer preserve a status quo that the Syrians were leaving behind and Hezbollah becomes the power broker very quickly. My memory is also of July 2006, a war that Lebanon had no reason to fight, a war that cost us a little too much for the sake of a few soldiers kidnapped by Hezbollah, and a war that decimates Lebanese lives and infrastructure, and a war that also ensures that Hezbollah becomes a machine that's larger than life, like today. My memory is also of 2008, May 2008. I was actually across the street from this apartment hiding in an old building that I used to rent an apartment from. There were snipers shooting each other on the streets of Beirut because a March 14 government tried to dislodge cameras monitoring them at the airport, tried to shut down a parallel telecommunications network operated by Hezbollah, I remember Walid Jumblad hiding in his home in Clemenceau. I mean, that's for me, that's stuck between two majority wins in, in parliament. Uh, my memory is also of Saad Hadidi's government in 2011 uh, saying that the special, tribunal, uh, special tribunal's indictments are valid. He's kicked out of the country. He's in exile for four years before returning in 2016. That's March 14. So I, I, Hezbollah's role cannot be discounted, the way the Syrian role cannot be discounted. But I will go one step further. I don't think there's any pass that should be given to anyone that made mistakes. Everyone is, should be held to account. I just don't think the shining, the shining stars that should have inherited places of power in this country, whether they're talented minds that were killed in 2005, or anyone that was murdered within that cause, Sorry, building on, building on what you just said, is it fair to say that 14th of March has lost any political traction? I don't think the movement is there, even in the rotten politics sense, which is what you were hinting at earlier, these sort of uh, pandering politicians that claim to be March 14, trying to make minor victories here and there. I think they're either out of government today or they're trying to get back in under Hezbollah's terms. So I wouldn't say that March 14 exists. The spirit of March 14, I think some of it lived in October 17. It's not entirely the same. Yeah. This is, this is part, part, partly something I want to touch on. Um, what do you think is the main difference between March 14, um, 2005 and 17 October 2019? Uh, well, aside from the fact that a lot of the March uh, 8 supporters showed up on October 17 in its earlier stage, uh, which made it huge. I mean, it's, it's the biggest protest in Lebanese history. Um, I think also that it's a national protest. It's not a Beirut protest. Tripoli was as excited as Saida and Nabatiye and Absharri. I think those are very important. Um, I think also that Lebanese were comfortable enough, at least over a certain period of time, 
at blaming everyone for different reasons, but blaming everyone. It may not be at the same level always, it may not be for the same reasons, but Lebanese were being accused, Lebanese leaders were being accused for the first time in a way that mattered, where quickly you wouldn't see Lebanese politicians on the streets. It's before the port blast, it's, uh, and it's before Corona. Lebanese politicians are hiding, and they're not showing their face in public. That's important. So a sense of accountability and a sense of really trying to get things right. Uh, March 14, I think, was really more of trying to end the post-Civil War Syrian order without really understanding what Hezbollah was turning into. October 17, I think, is all of the above. It's, some, it's, it's economic frustration, it's uh, political paralysis, and it's, I think, a yearning for justice. So do, do you think at heart, as you're speaking about the essence of March 14, do you think that at heart October 17 carries uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, fundamental messages March 14 uh, carried? I think there are protesters within October 17 that felt that they had kinship with March 14. I think a lot of them are the same people as well. But the economic downturn, which March 14 didn't really, it, it talked about it in ways that were less, less catastrophic. I mean, the social welfare that democratic leftists were talking about in March 14, 2005, it's a very different conversation than the baking sector today. Uh, so there are, there's different stories and it's a different time. But um, I think there's overlap. They may not be the same, but if you look at it as a Venn diagram, there's clearly overlap. And that's why it's so big. We have a very wide opposition today. <laughs> that's an understatement. Yes, you're right. <laughs> um, the widest opposition in modern history. <laughs> I, I, I'll also talk about that in a bit. But to start off, do, do, do you feel that the opposition today in Lebanon has... Um, the political maturity needed for this critical phase in our history? That's a great question. Um, I'm reluctant to say something, but I think over time this is a, a fair way of looking at it. This could be a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. Uh, depending on who you talk to on October 17, or forget October 17, opposition. If you include in this story, the oldest or one of the oldest Lebanese parties in Lebanese history, they may be the largest party, the largest grouping in the opposition. Clearly that frustrates half of the October 17 opposition parties, and clearly it took time to persuade the other half, but uh, Political maturity, in my mind, means perhaps a, an older understanding of what has impacted Lebanon. That it's not just the last two years that Lebanon's problems are older. And that they're not born out of a uh, depreciation of the lira rate. Or for that matter, real, real pain that all of us are facing. Financial, uh, environmental, everything. That's... Not, that cannot be discounted, but I think fresh groups that don't have that wider lens, I think, are not best fit. I'm just going to be the, 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 the devil's advocate, and um, uh, this question is not 
part of my um, question list originally, uh, but I'm very intrigued to ask it because, um, you know, you're answering and I'm, I'm thinking about everyone who I talk to, all the people that, uh, uh, you know, engage in debates with me. And so, so I'm asking this question on their behalf. Some groups in the opposition today claim that they understand the depth of the problem and they understand it's a problem that touches on the, 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 the foundation of the, the, the establishment. Uh, they believe that we need to change the whole system. However, still fail to acknowledge um, um, what's at stake in terms of how worse it can get because we i mean we heard voices after the the uh, the, the beirut bar uh, elections of people saying well we don't care that we didn't win what we care about is that we fought the 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 uh, you know um, uh, the, the the dignified fight you know whatever whatever they said which to me as a pragmatist does not really touches on the the uh, um the implications of what might happen if things really got out of hand or if the deal between Iran and the US materializes into something worse uh, than we were seeing. So what would you say to these people in terms of maturity? Again, we're, we're, the, the, the question is the same. I'm just, I'm just reflecting back on what you said because, and I can, you know, I, I, I don't want to name groups, but I, I think you know who I'm talking about. A couple of groups in specific who claim they call for system reformation, for system change, still refuse to be part of, of um, be, being held accountable for failing to step up in this phase. There are, I think there are some groups that are better able to reflect and offer that kind of uh, maturity, if that's the right word. Um, I, I mean, we could name, I don't mind naming some names, Mintishreen, uh, I think are learning the hard way of how to turn a protest movement into a parliamentary movement. They go from street protest to electioneering. That's not easy and they're doing it in a very quick, short, short period of time and they're learning on the go and they're able to offer at least, maybe they don't have the tools, but they can offer their own reasonable perspective on issues like Hezbollah. They can talk about financial responsibility, they can talk about reform. The average age may be something like 22, but they're, they're good at it and they're getting there. You have an older group that rebranded itself, Kitlil Wataniye. Some of the names are familiar, some are not. I think they're looking at why former election wins did not yield positive change. If you're doing that, if you're looking back at 2005, 2009, or any election prior to this one, and looking at mistakes made and why majorities don't necessarily matter, I think that's maturity. The vast range of other groups that go all over the spectrum. Um, I think, and I, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I sense that the numbers are not that big, and that maybe they wouldn't have enough to even make it to begin with, that maybe, maybe, they're more media savvy and more influential on social media than they are in terms of parliament. But that, I could be wrong there.
Um, yeah, I understand. It was just we're we're um, uh, we're assessing the situation. So, do you think from the, from this perspective that there is no group that has the proper tools to um, start changing the status quo or start uh, the process of rectifying um, the problem? I, I I mean I have not heard a group or or a coalition that may be in the making. Uh, offer a opa, and I love that. If we're going to look at previous elections as a template to learn from, I don't think new groups are any different than earlier attempts. I do think that there are reform-minded individuals that are desperate to get into power and seek fundamental change. I don't know what they can do beyond maybe periphery cosmetic change. I think the core issue or the core issues cannot be solved as long as there's the wider story of political violence. That said though, there are parties that are trying to either do what, do what they can or, and this is how I understand them, seeking to maybe avoid the issue and wait. And I'll give you an example. So, yeah. uh, I don't know this group that well, but I've met many of their members. Uh, uh, Mumfid, the uh, Shaban Nahas uh, political party. Yeah. Is that a good thing that we 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 uh, we refer to them as Shaban Nahas party? Is that uh, is that a good sign? You're right. It could be a bit sloppy from my side. Um, the Shabin Nahas cult. No, it's not really sloppy on your side. It's uh, it's shared. You know, whenever we say Minfir goes who the Shabin Nahas party. So I'm just, I just, uh, yeah. You're right. The the very very uh, very appealing political party that exists technically prior to October 17, but uh, finds a way to really make the headlines following October 17. Um, I think they have a very extensive platform. I think they've done their research. I've tried reading some of it. It's extensive. Sometimes it's laborious. But uh, I think they're really keen on working within the state. My understanding of this project is avoiding the biggest piece of the problem and waiting. So that means don't look at Hezbollah as a core issue, or at least their weapons as a core issue. Look at economics and look at corruption, talk about the central bank, talk about welfare, talk about everything, education, urban planning. I mean, Shabin Nahas uh, is part of the state. I mean, he worked in CDR. He, uh, he's an urban planning expert. He served in previous governments. So I think he's, he's fluent in how the state works. But ignoring a sub-state army, I don't think that can... I don't think that offers much other than temporary access to certain levers of power, marginal change, and a wait-and-see approach that maybe Hezbollah is here to stay indefinitely and this group may make gains in the process. On the other side, and they're not opposition, they're maybe former opposition, I don't know what you'd call them today, the end of the future party. That group that saw itself whether it was or not is something else, but saw itself as a technically opposition to Hezbollah, um, even though they may not have been opposition all along.
they're out. So that is an important story in that this may be the first time in a very long time where you have the old inertia, this old power sharing among communities. There's one community that may not take part in a way that matters. And you already hear this on the streets, you hear it, I mean, it's all over social media, so it's not like, this is not a hidden conversation, it's, it's, it's spoken, is that there's an insecurity here, which is bad for Lebanon. And for better or worse, this individual, Saad Hariri, still is the most important communal leader in the Sunni camp. So that, I don't know what happens there. It could be a postponement of elections, there could be boycotting that leads to postponement. I, I don't know what happens there. So I, I, I want to go back to how do you, your, your emotions, for, although we've, we, we're, we're way past that, but because I've, had this, I've heard this conversation from Memphis, and Memphis are expecting to be handed power uh, by the ruling class because the ruling class should realize that that's the proper thing to do, and they should just hand in power to... Uh, a temporary government, and this temporary government is expected to do all the uh, reformation that is required, uh, which is to me, um, um, let's say the least, is is um, detached from how people think, how societies work, how group uh, dynamics function. But nevertheless, my question is, don't you feel frustrated that after everything we've been through, we know that the elections will not bring change big enough to change the status quo? Is this not the fundamental problem that hits the depth of our democracy if we had any democracy? So we're saying, in a way, if the democracy was to be played out, people are going to vote the same people in because they want to preserve their clan leaders, their sectarian leaders, because they want to feel safety and security, just like the Sunnis want to feel safe and secure. And everyone wants to continue blaming the other party for the fucked up situation we're having. So. Despite the situation, despite what we're going through, people would still vote the same people in. Is this not frustrating on one hand? And is um, the solution of some groups to overcome this by not really focusing on the elections? Because like elections is not going to bring any change. So we don't want the elections. We just want people in power to give us government does not really is this not really scary to what might happen next especially that this group is not i mean he's talking speaking about memphis is not perceiving hezbollah as the threat they are so i mean i'll i'll try to be respectful to their intention because i will say this up front that i'm not so fluent in exactly what they're trying to do or whether or not they still intend to even participate well, you know what we don't we don't we don't even have to focus on memphis as a group my, my, what, what, what I care about is this, this, this dynamic. Is yeah. it not frustrating sure. that after everything that we've been through, like me, any, you ask any expert today, they tell you that well, it's most likely that we're not going to see any serious changes in the, in the upcoming elections. We might see uh, uh, an opposition uh, uh, coalition which might 
bring in uh, 10 MPs, but that's it. Yeah. Is this not frustrating? And is this and is not wanting to overcome this not a threat to our democracy or semi-democracy we have? I share your frustration. I I sense that a likely outcome is a persuasive group like Mumfid could end up repeating the mistake Tayyar Watani al-Hur made in 2006 with Hezbollah, which led to 15 years and among the worst years of modern oh, Lebanese history. Yeah, uh, I think that is a that is a reasonable situation. If should they seek power and avoid a central component to the reasons why we are here. Um, but I'll take it on the other side too. Let's say an independent, or for that matter, a younger group, whether it's Mintashin or anyone else, that makes it to parliament. And let's say the number is something like 10 to 15 at most. So that's a conservative, but maybe that's a reasonable measure to where things are heading. Clearly, they will not have what it takes to do much. The problem, I think, is that even if their numbers were bigger, they still might not have enough to do what is necessary, which means that elections are not the issue at hand. They're important. They should happen. There's no reason to excuse that. No, there should be elections. But elections without agency, I think, is something that's uh, defining our modern era. I mean, 2005, 2009, 2016, 18, the like, it's where we are. That majority wins or noble, reasonable reformers can't do much. Now, I'll take it all the way here. Let's include the regime. Uh, we have a minister of environment who's been on my podcast, uh, Nasser Yassin, an AUB guy. I think he has reasonable intentions. I think he's fit for the job. I don't think he can do much when it comes to environmental decay in this country or erosion or disaster. Um, I'll go even a step further. A March 8 friendly camp uh, party, Syrian Socialist Nationalist Party, the deputy prime minister of this country is technically, technically a member of that party, even though they probably don't even know who he is and he doesn't know who they are either. But there's, there's enough space maybe between them, but he still is technically in that party. I think he's a reformer. I think he's trying. He's an IMF guy trying to get an IMF deal before this government expires. He doesn't have the tools necessary. Saad Hariri may have ended his political career yesterday, but the truth is it ended a long time ago. He didn't have the tools either. So election wins don't matter enough to make change. And I agree with your sentiment fully. I think ignoring structural problems and blindly focusing on elections and making that the priority only, um, I think it's a mistake. And I hope, I hope enough of the October 17 parties or members that do make their way into parliament. And I think a lot of these people are friends. Lebanon is a small country. We end up knowing these people personally. I hope they realize this as well, because there's no reason for their, for their names to get burned. There's no reason for their careers to end short. And I'm always wary of anyone who's doing this just to get a job. And they want this to be their crown jewel, that they made it to power. That, for me, is very ugly. And I don't think anyone in this country deserves that kind of politician.
I wonder why we always end on a very dark note. Um, let's go back to the opposition, like the opposition we, we, we accept to be the opposition today, which means uh, groups in the, in the 17th uh, uh, October uh, camp and um, um, the Lebanese opposition front, what we know now as the Lebanese opposition front, which includes Kataib. You said that Kataib, and I'm only bringing this up again because you mentioned it, um, Kataib is accepted by, by half of, of, of the groups today and um, uh, opposed by the other half. However, there were occasions where Kataib was not part of, of the equation and these groups still um, did not manage to, uh, to break even. They did not manage to agree on, on, how to, on what to do and uh, the Beirut Bar Association is, is, a, is, a, is a recent uh, mem memory of that. So my question is, do you think there's an ideological distinction between these different groups? Which might be the real reason behind the, them rejecting one another. Like, yes, they all have a problem with the establishment, yet they also have a problem with each other's ideologies in a way that Kataib uh, at some point might be uh, the excuse, but even when there's no Kataib, there's... The fact that we disagree on social reform, we disagree on economic reform, we don't see eye to eye when it comes to what this country needs. Do you think we have this ideological uh, um, um, problem amongst the opposition groups? And I, I do mean the recent, the newly formed opposition groups. I couldn't say it better. You're absolutely right. I think it's a scapegoat. You remove Kateb from the equation and you still have these varying differences, and some of them you can't reconcile. There's definitely an ideological issue. An ideology could extend to Hezbollah's place in modern Lebanon. It could extend to what resistance means. It could extend to the central bank. It could extend to welfare. I think ideology can go all over the place. Differences are fine. So you can have a leftist, uh, you could have a Marxist and a right-wing nationalist that can find common cause in certain areas. And that's enough reason to do a coalition. So I don't think having diverse uh, disagreements on economics and the like, I don't think that's a problem. That's fine. I think even issues that are maybe more controversial, I don't think they matter that much because when it comes to elections, if you want to leave a footprint, you need to reconcile some, some of your platform and find common cause where it matters. So the diverging opinions, I think, is that's maybe, maybe even healthy. Maybe makes the movement more appealing. Core issues, and then Kateb becomes the scapegoat. Um, I think you're right. I think uh, the issue of sub-state weaponry is often conflated with Kateb, and the two are not the same. I mean, whether Kateb is vocally opposing Hezbollah's weapons or not, I think you'd have that divide. That divide, I think includes somebody like Shab al Nahas who's not able to maybe deliver it bluntly. And that may also include communists. And maybe their numbers are not that big. But uh, I think October 17 does have a problem with that issue. So I, I want to make sure that we agree, yeah. we agree on this, because this is where I stand, um, that uh, it's okay to be different ideologically and still 
be part of the same coalition if we share at a certain point in time a shared goal it's not it's not unnatural for this to happen because i want you to say it with your own words because i've been saying this you've been saying this and we need to say this again because these people need to hear this they keep saying it's unnatural for these different uh, uh, ideological ideas to come under that under one collision it's not natural it is natural <laughs> And we have seen that in different places where people who are on the opposite sides of ideology come together for the sake of a common goal at a specific moment in time. I agree. And I think uh, if elections happen, and let's say October 17 has something like 10 to 15 members, some of them independents, some of them new parties, some of them old parties, it doesn't matter. I think you'll see strange things like a Mintashrin MP and a Lebanese Forces MP discussing legislation. These two characters may not ever meet in Lebanon. They may have nothing in common on the streets of Beirut. Roni, this is the last question. Thank you, Annie. It has been, been a, a very fruitful episode. Um, so do you think, in blunt terms, that a coalition that includes some traditional parties that have clearly been in the opposition with other emerging parties would actually advance our chances at changing or starting to change the status quo. So do you think it's okay to have an open coalition between some traditional parties, which have been doing some really good work uh, in the opposition. They have been clearly establishing themselves as an opposition party. With some of the emerging groups would actually increase our chances to uh, um, have a better representation in the upcoming elections, even if that means having three or four or five or ten additional members, hopefully. I think even if the regional conditions are terrible for Lebanon for the rest of our lives, we should still try to work within the limited space we're offered. And if that's the limited realm for a small coalition to take hold and begin that noble task, and if that coalition can reconcile some of the less important differences and come to terms with the bigger issues at hand, you may see the beginning of a new political movement in this country. Not something that's protest only, but politics. I would subscribe to that movement myself. Um, for me, groups don't impress me. What impresses me the most is a political party that reaches out to anyone, regardless of confession, that reaches to all types of Lebanese, all various regions and economic class, and doesn't look at the boring uh, labels, that to me is appealing. And I'd rather be 5% of my confession in a group that resonates with me. I don't mind being 5%, as long as it's the 5% that I can talk to. That said, I don't want to sound too dreamy or lofty here. Um, I think our differences are real. I think no matter how uh, secular I am in my private life, and no matter how secular my friends are, or even loved ones, um, I think Lebanon's communities are old. Their insecurities at times are real. And I think it's a mistake to discount them in hopes of a shared identity that may not be there. Now, I know that's a, maybe a bit of an out-of-step controversial way to end the episode. And I know we didn't really go into identity itself.
But I think it's okay for a country to have a multitude of identities and reform itself and find a way to live together that makes sense for Lebanese. To get there, I think we have to end what tore this country apart. If we can do that, and going back to our earlier part in 1970, if we can pick up from where we left off, maybe our kids will see a better Lebanon. I don't think it's in our lifetime, but I think our kids have that potential. Uh, Roni, to me, a good episode is one that is ending, yet um, at the same time, I feel that there's more to talk about and more questions to ask. Uh, did you like our happy hour? Oh, I mean, look, I finished my drink, so clearly, it was well, well, uh, it was a very, very pleasurable two hour conversation. Maybe when it's edited down, it'll be 30 minutes. I don't know. <laughs> but I loved it, Ramsey, and I'm glad we get to do this with our roles reversed. I, I will cheer to your empty glass, Lacan. Cheers. Well, I'm ahead Cheers. of you. Cheers, Ramsey. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Cheers to you.